Thank you guys for being with us to worship the Lord on this day, the 31st of October. If you're just joining us, we've been moving rather briskly through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Today is the seventh week of the series, Walking with Jesus. And last week we learned that the forerunner of Christ, his cousin, his uh, beloved prophet John the Baptist, was killed after his imprisonment. We heard all the strange details. You remember that story, Herod, Herodias, the divorce, the party, the dancing, the beheading, really just a wild story. We went through all of that last week. And after all of this plays out in Mark 6, Jesus and his disciples, they continue on in their ministry. They go through the feeding of the 5,000. So in case you feel cheated, you can always go back and read that. Uh, it's a classic. And then in, uh, also in Mark 6, the walking on the water. So you can get alone in your house, play Oceans by Hillsong, and just have a good moment there. It'll be good. In Mark's gospel, it's been just healing after healing, uh, miracle after miracle, a display of power and authority from Jesus constantly. And today's message honestly slows down a little bit from all of that. I don't know how you could top it, what we've been doing. But today's message in Mark 7 perfectly complements the date on the calendar in which we find ourselves, which happens to be October 31. Now, I don't mean Halloween, in case you're wondering that. Uh, On October 31st, 1517, a German monk in the Roman Catholic Church named Martin Luther nailed his, how many theses to the door? 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. You got to switch the W and the V there, right? So these were 95 grievances, basically, with the Uh, the teaching, the practice, the trajectory of the church at that time, as well as an invitation to debate. That's what the nailing on the door signified. This is what historians now look back at and see as the primary catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. So what does the Protestant Reformation have to do with Mark 7? Well, as you'll see today, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of not adhering to certain rules. Uh, Their implication is that Jesus is in the wrong, possibly that Jesus was sinning, and that's what the implication of the text is today. However, Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes is that this matter is actually just a religious tradition, not commanded by God. In other words, the Pharisees wanted to impose on Jesus and his disciples a made-up law stemming from man-made tradition, and we're going to study that today. But as we do, I hope that In your mind, there's this flavor of the Reformation as we talk. I'm not going to give you a full-blown history of it today or anything like that, but the reality is one of the deep fundamental reasons why Protestants exist is this very difference. What is clearly revealed from God in his word versus what is created by man as a tradition. If you are a Protestant, meaning you're not Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, That would mean you are a Baptist, you are a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a non-denominational Christian. Your history is tied up in some way to what Martin Luther did on that day. Uh, Your very theological existence is connected to protest, to protest. You might say, Pastor, are you saying we've been protesting for 500 years? And the answer to that is, Yes, but to our credit, it has been a mostly peaceful protest. Now, I think that you will find the role tradition plays. <laughs> you can't laugh that loud, Stephen. It's going to get me going. I think you will find that the role tradition plays in our faith is actually a very important discussion. Uh, 
This is where lots of conflicts and splits originate in traditions. So I think it's valuable to study it. Look, the Catholic Church has been masterful at creating extra unnecessary traditions, adding to Scripture. But what I want you to know is that struggle is not unique to Catholics. Baptists have traditions that we elevate. Uh, Cool, non-denominational hip churches have traditions that they elevate. Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus have traditions. American government has traditions. We have legal precedents. Our media, our culture has man-made traditions that they elevate to the level of law. And this is because the heart of man constantly seeks new ways to both elevate ourselves and condemn others based upon traditions we have created. This is why the Reformation can really never end, because our hearts need constant reformation. Our faith and practice needs constant return back to look at the original. You ever made a Xerox copy of a copy and then made a copy of that copy? What happens? School teachers, I know y'all have done this. You can't find the original paper for the worksheet, and so you just keep copying the copy, and eventually it starts to get faded and faded, and you don't even know what the original looked like anymore. We got to be careful that that doesn't become our faith, that we just do what other, we repeat what other people have said and what other people have told us about Jesus and what other people have told us about the Bible, but we got to go to the original. We want the real stuff. Jesus helps us today, I believe, in the text to see that difference. So if you would, bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we ask today, as we look at this text, Lord, that there would not be a spirit of condemnation in our hearts toward others, but Father, that we would look at our own hearts, find those traditions that we elevate, that your spirit would point those things out that our church can be better at, that our personal hearts can be better at, Lord, that we would not spend our lives chasing a tradition or something made by man, but that we would chase only after you, your word, and your truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Join me in Mark 7. That's where we'll be today, Mark chapter 7. Uh, This text reignites a theme that we have not studied since chapter 3, which is Jesus' clash, the rub, with the religious leaders. The characters in this story are Jesus, his disciples, and a group of leaders called scribes and Pharisees. So think of scribes and Pharisees Uh, in the story, like government-employed hall monitors, or maybe our modern-day code enforcers, right? That's a job that just can't be fun, you know, to be the guy to put the ticket on someone's windshield. I, I, I do not envy that job, but someone has to do it, right? But anyway, but these scribes and Pharisees had authority. They really did have authority under the Jewish law at the time. And so the Pharisees' mission in life, their whole goal for existing was to try and make sure Israel never again slipped back into the idolatry and sin that plagued them through all the Old Testament. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's a problem. It's all over. You know, there's almost this feeling of why don't they create someone whose job it is to monitor the law? Well, they did. And here's what happened. So the problem uh, with the much of the, what the Pharisees are doing in the Gospels is that they're so dialed up to 11 all the time, their zeal for the law, that they actually end up accusing Jesus of sin and not keeping the law. So that's, that's when you know you're a little bit dialed up too high, right? So this exposes their flaws, which also allows Jesus to explain valuable lessons on legalism, which we benefit from today. 
And what I think is so interesting about Jesus is the way he does this, he never disparages the Old Testament to make his point. You ever notice that? Jesus always elevates and adheres to the law of the Old Testament to show that we need to avoid legalism. I think that's awesome. Now, let's go ahead and read Mark 7, 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? All right, we'll pause there as we explain. So let's be clear on what we just read. This is the moment of kind of downtime for Jesus, right? It's been just constant miracles and power and boom, boom, boom in the gospel. It, they, this is nice. It just We kind of chill out. Let's eat a meal. But of course, in that moment of rest, who's there? The Pharisees and the scribes, not far off observing and peeping and monitoring with their little notepads. And what do we see? Verse two, some of Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. The horror, the unmitigated gall. And so what do the Pharisees do? Well, of course, they reach into their kid's diaper bag. They grab the hand sanitizer, squirt, squirt, problem solved, disaster averted, right? No, this has absolutely nothing to do with sanitation, and hygiene. Mark gives a phrase in verse 2 to describe the hands. He says, defiled, comma, that is, comma, unwashed. Now, that word defiled in Greek is koinos. It is translated in the New Testament primarily to the word common, uh, meaning the opposite of holy. It can also be translated as unclean. So, our text today shows defiled. And what you need to know, this was a ceremonial moment for these Jews, and yes, there was water involved in this little hand-washing routine, but it was not for the purpose of germs. It was not scrubbing for 30 seconds under warm water while you sing happy birthday. Or is that brushing your teeth? I don't know. Now, Mark, knowing much of this, uh, much of his intended audience was Roman, know that they don't know about this. What, what is, they're reading this. What is this washing? The Roman audience doesn't know what this is. And so Mark talks to the reader. This is a little aside moment. Almost like when the narrator talks to you and about Jewish customs, and that happens in verses 3 and 4. He says, you see, the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands properly. Again, in Greek, it's a Jewish idiom that's even used here. The most literal reading of that phrase is, unless they wash their hands with a fist. Maybe your Bible has a little footnote there by that phrase. Uh, it says, they, they apparently had some very specific way. I don't know. I read all sorts of stuff this week. I don't know, you know. You know, I don't know what they did. You know, there was a certain way to wash your hands. They had a very specific method, and it had to be this way to perform the ceremony when they were washing their hands. And uh, it was really completely for the benefit of other people seeing it. I mean, right? It's not for cleanliness, so it's for the appearance. It's so that you know and I know we're all taking this very seriously. This is a very important moment. Let's wash our hands, you know, and we got it. Good. Okay. Usually this was done after a trip to the marketplace because there were Gentiles in the marketplace. They would handle money and they would exchange goods. And so this was probably done after a trip to the market to show 
we Jews, before we eat, are cleansing ourselves of the defilement of being around these Gentiles. Now, what's a good question to ask in a time like this? Because at this point, up to the reading, you, you don't really know what to think, especially if it's your first time reading through the Gospel of Mark. You know, did Jesus slip up? Did his disciples mess up? Uh, did he fail to keep a very specific Old Testament law? Because one of the things we talk about all the time is how wonderful it is that Jesus fulfilled the law, that he did it all. He kept every jot and tittle. He did it. So what if this is, what if they caught him right here? What if he didn't? This makes this very important. The best question to ask in this situation is what does God require of us? What does God require? You see, here's a good life lesson. I'm going to help some of y'all out with this. Just because someone is mad at you doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. You believe that? Just because someone is offended by you doesn't necessarily mean you need to apologize. Now, that's not marriage advice. You know, that's, real, that's uh, you know, all the other parts of life. But, you know, but... All that to say, just because the Pharisees say, I can't believe you don't do the hand-washing routine, Jesus, doesn't mean anything until you consult the standard. And what is the standard? God's word, scripture. So we look, which is it? Last line of verse three, the middle of verse four, gives us an answer. There's a word, starts with T, rhymes with sedition. What is that word? T.T. Tradition, there it is, holding to the tradition of the elders. And there were many other traditions that they observe in verse 4. What's a tradition? Well, when the national anthem plays, what do you do? What if we pressed a button back there said, Amber, push the button. All y'all would stand, wouldn't you? You would. Okay, what would you do with your hand? You'd put it over your heart. Men, what if you happened to be wearing a hat? What would you do? You would take it off. When we're finishing up, and Whitney Houston is really going for it at the end, and the home of the brave. When do you start the clap? Right there on brave, right? Boom, you're in, we're all in. Who told us to do this? Who, what, is there a manual? There might be, but generally, most of us just learned this because it's a tradition, Ladies, when you go to a friend's wedding, what's the one color you don't wear to that wedding? White. Who told you to do that? Who told you that, right? Your mom probably, right? Someone else? Men, when it's time to tell the woman you're dating that you'd like to marry her, there's a certain gift you present to her. Box of Cracker Jacks? What is it? A diamond ring, right? There's a, there's a tradition there. When you say, will you marry me? What kind of physical posture do you attain, gentlemen? You get down, you don't, you know, you don't do that. You get down on one knee, right? There's a thing you do. You, we could go on and on and on and on. Life is full of traditions, right? Many of them are fine. They're fine. Traditions are not the enemy. Hear that today. Traditions are not the enemy. I like most of those traditions we just said. That's why I used them. Now, here's the problem. The Pharisees had taken a tradition and elevated it to the level of law when it was not. You see, in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, you can read it, you can check me, there is no law 
for the people of Israel to wash their hands a certain way before they eat. There was a ceremonial washing for the priest, the priest in the temple before sacrifices and before their service had a very specific washing. But what they did was they, they took that that was for the priest and they applied it to the whole nation. Well, did God tell them to do that? No, God did not tell them to do that. Where did this come from? How did this happen? Well, the Jewish leaders and rabbis wrote on the law. They wrote commentary on the law. They wrote opinions. They developed schools of thought, uh, Hillel and Shammai, you know, all of those. And one of these was about hand washing. At the time of Jesus, the rabbinic commentary, as we call it today, wasn't formalized. It was oral tradition. That means it's, it's kind of like what we just described. It's, we just all know it. It's bouncing around out there, but it's not written down. Eventually, they did write these things down, and they're called the Mishnah, and ultimately, the Talmud. So they are there now. At the time, they were just floating around in the air. This would be like if Christians developed a commentary set that we said, this is as good as Bible. This commentary that I read goes along with the Bible and is to be held to the same standard as the Bible. Why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Because God inspired the Bible, right? The Mishnah, the Talmud, the Apocrypha, Josephus, church fathers, the reformers, and great pastors' sermons may be helpful, may be filled with nuggets of truth, may contain parts of Scripture, may be worth studying, but nothing outside the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. That means that the Bible is on a different level than everything else. Sola Scriptura for the Reformation people. Sola Scriptura by the Scriptures alone. They alone are authoritative and sufficient for our life and practice and salvation and truth. The Pharisees had elevated this hand washing to the same level as the Ten Commandments. Tradition had become law. Law had become tradition. Man's words were becoming indistinguishable from God's words, and that's a big problem. So, before we move on, let's ask this question. Why do we do this? Because every generation struggles with this, especially in churches. But it can be in other areas of life too. But why do we struggle with this? Why is there such an allure to taking our traditions and elevating them to the point of inspired God word law? Why do we do that? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. I came up with three, three big ones that I want to give you of why I think, why Jared Cress thinks that we do this, okay? Number one, there's a lot of false piety that you can achieve for keeping traditions, if there's a tradition you abide by that others choose not to, you can begin to feel better than other people. Say, I'll give you an example. The only reason I'm, I'm not saying anybody's done this to me. The only reason I had this example is because Abby and I talked about, about why Mormons don't drink caffeine this week, all right? I, that's just been in my head, so I thought, let's use that as an example because none of y'all would be on the chopping block, okay? So let's say you don't drink soda or caffeine just because, just because you're health conscious, okay? It's not hard to begin to feel better than other Christians who do drink caffeine or soda, even though there's really no reason for it. 
And, and here's, here's where false piety happens. You've all known someone who's done this. You, probably we've done it at some point. Every time someone offers you a coffee, for example, you say, oh, oh goodness, oh no. I gave up coffee years ago when I got saved. You see, you see how, you know, you're saying things without saying things, right? Every time someone, you hear someone pop that top on a Mountain Dew, you just kind of look over with the side eye with disdain on your face, just dripping. You know what I mean? It starts to build, right? Something starts to build. False piety. I'm so good. Look at me. I don't do what you do. I'm higher. I'm better than you. False piety. That's number one. Number two, why we do this, we get to feel like God when we tell other people what to do. There's a little part of our fallen nature wherein we like to pretend to be God. And a fallen, uh, a fallen way that that manifests itself is telling other people what to do. Now, if I tell you, for example, don't steal from other people, I'm just a vessel for God's authority because God said that. God said don't steal from other people. I don't get any jollies off of that because I didn't make that up. Now, if I go around telling people, don't go to Starbucks because I said so. Well, Jared 3.16 says you can't go to Starbucks. Well, then I'm just bossing you around, right? Because there's nothing that, that says that you can or can't do that. So in our fallenness, we like to find ways to push and pull and tell as if we're God. And as if I have some authority to tell you what you can do when the, when the Bible hasn't spoken on it. Number three, and this will transition us to our next point. We overemphasize man-made laws to cover up a lack of concern for weightier matters of the law. You see, traditions are often simplistic. Don't wear a hat. Sing this type of music. Wear a suit and tie or else. That's all easy. That's easy stuff. You know what's not easy? Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. That's harder. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That's hard. Pure religion is taking care of widows and orphans. That's not simple, but it is significant. Sometimes we use traditions as a mixed direction play to take attention away from the fact that there might not be that much spiritual fruit going on in our lives. So we cover it with a big show of outward traditions to say, wow, look how holy that guy is. But when you strip away the traditions, there ain't much there. And that's what we all have to be careful of. Jesus is about to systematically show this very point to the Pharisees. We have seen the allure of binding tradition. Next we see number two, the accusation of blatant treachery. The accusation of blatant treachery. As Jesus always does, he sees right through the charade to the deeper matter of the heart. We're going to look at Mark 7, 6 through 8. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. We'll pause there. Jesus makes a direct accusation of the scribes and Pharisees. He accuses them of hypocrisy. 
Now that word in Greek is linked to that character in the old Greek plays who would wear the different masks. Eventually, it came to mean that you present yourself differently in different situations depending on where you're at. We know this word today, we use the word inauthentic to describe this. It's always jarring to us when someone is found to be a hypocrite, especially someone who we respect. For example, most of us grew up watching Bill Cosby on The Cosby Show. I know, it hurts to even talk about it, doesn't it? Not only was the show clean, full of moral lessons, regularly spoke on the values of uh, character in life, and then a few years ago, it was discovered a double life was being lived. The same with Ravi Zacharias. Hurts me, hurts me to say that, that someone that I listened to, that I read and studied, was living a double life. It's shocking when that happens. It jars you. How could someone present themselves one way for so long but have something else going on in their heart. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. And to make his point, he quoted from Isaiah 29, which is, by the way, a very underrated chapter. You should read Isaiah 29 today. If you remember, we studied Amos this summer, the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet. Isaiah prophesied just a little bit later than Amos in the same context. So we kind of have some of that in our mind of what was going on. The shell of worship was happening. The temples were operational. The people made their offerings. But it was all for show. None of it was real. Nothing was really happening in the heart of the people. Jesus taps into that context and applies it forward to the Pharisees. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Let me just say, I hope, I hope Jesus could never say that of us. Don't you? When you look at your life, I hope Jesus could never say, they talked a big game, but their heart was far from me. In vain they worshiped me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they're great at making stuff up. Man-made ideas and then go around and sell their ideas as the word of God and enforce it on other people. God hates that. At this point in the debate between the Pharisees and Jesus, it seems that what would be most helpful in this debate would be a concrete example. When someone is charged as being a hypocrite, you know, they could just simply say, nah, or I know you are, but what am I? And so Jesus just happened to come ready with one very specific example. He had the receipt. He was ready to read it. We've seen the allure of binding traditions followed by the accusation of blatant treachery. Next, we're going to see number three, the avoidance of beneficial tasks. We're going to see how the Pharisees did all of this to ultimately avoid what God wanted them to do. Jesus is going to show an example here to illustrate how tradition can be used to escape God's command. I'm glad he did this because it would be hard, you know, sometimes you're trying, someone's like, name one example. And you're just, ah, you really can't think of something. Jesus gives us the example here. So this is great. Read Mark 7, 9 through 13 with me. And he said to them, so he's talking to the Pharisees, Jesus is, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. And many such things you do. If you're confused, hold on. I'm going to get there, all right? Some of you are like, Corbin, chicken Corbon blue? What is this? I don't know. What is this? No, we're going to get there. So Jesus exposes a common practice of the Pharisees. Remember, he's showing them. The whole point is to show how one can use a tradition to get around the word of God. So verse 10, Jesus reminds them what Moses said. So let's go to the standard. Moses says in the law, the Bible, honor your father and mother. That's one of the 10, right? That's a biggie. That's critical. God-given law. No disputing, plain, uh, plain, clear, well-known. Okay. The next part, let's get to that Corbin part. The word Corbin is a transliteration, which just means the translators left it alone. The same way it sounded in Hebrew, they left it in Greek, and when they brought it into English, they left it. So it sounds the same way in all the languages. That's what this is. So it basically means an offering given to God a dedicated offering, or in our terms, a designated gift. That's how we might use it. Of course, just like then, just like today, you can give an offering anytime to God. A free will gift, you could drop a check in the back today as you exit where the offering boxes are. You can pay off the church's remaining debt if you'd like to. You can buy a thousand food bags for a food giveaway. You can buy the Gideon's 500 Bibles, right, Brother Randy? If you wanted to, you could, right? You could do whatever you want. It's a free will offering. Another thing you could do if you wanted to give something to the Lord, you could designate in your will that upon your death, the church is to receive the proceeds of the sale of your house, a percentage of your inheritance, or just everything. Some people do that. You just give everything to the church. This is connected to what the Pharisees did. Some of y'all are like, that was a, I know what you did, Pastor. You're priming the pump there. No, I'm just talking, okay? So what the Pharisees did was this. They made a big public declaration. Everything they own is Corbin. It's all yours, God. So they make this big public declaration That's every asset they have is a dedicated asset. It's a dedicated offering. What that meant was upon their death, all assets would be given to the temple system. They basically tithed everything upon their death. Now, when they did this, everyone oohed and ah, How holy. Ooh, ah. Great gesture, right? I'm not making fun of it. It is a great gesture. That's great. Well, here's the problem. There's always a catch. They used this declaration to rationalize not helping their aging family members when they needed them. So, Scenario goes like this. I'm trying not to step on any toes. I'm stepping lightly, okay? So, scenario goes like this. Pharisee has a mother who's an elderly widow. She doesn't have much money left, no ability to pay her bills or work. She's an elderly widow in the first century, and that's a tough place to be. These Pharisees, who were usually pretty wealthy, would say, Ah, sorry, Mom. I wish I could help. But you see... I've made an oath to God that all my assets are Corbin. Sorry, it's God's money now. I'm not free to give it to you. You understand, of course. And then they would go on to live their life spending money the way they normally would, with no changes, 
and they would live, their standard of living would be high. So Jesus describes this situation. He says, God says, honor your father and mother. God didn't make up this Corbin thing. You did. God doesn't want your Corbin money as much as he wants you to honor your father and mother. God wants you to care, Pharisee, for your elderly widowed mom. That's what God wants from you. Jesus says in verse 13, when you do things like this, you actually void the word of God by your tradition. That Corbin thing, it steals the ability to properly honor your father and mother. It robs God's word of its meaning. That tradition helps to avoid what the word of God commands us to do and makes others think we're so righteous and holy because everybody sees the big Corbin declaration. You know, they see you when you walk down front with your tithe check, you know, and you're shaking and dancing and you drop it in the plate, you know, and you shimmy back to your seat. People see that, but they don't see your mom at home barely making it, eating cat food. Like they don't see that, all right? So Jesus calls that out. He says, hey, God doesn't want this. You think God wants this. God never asked for this. You made this up. You made this up so you could get around God's law. And here's the thing. I know in some way we have to have these in our life. We have to have these moments where we do this in our life. Now, this one may not hit you square in the, in the eye. You know, I don't have elderly aging parents yet, so I got to look to other areas in my life where I do this. But I know it says in this verse that the Pharisees did many things just like this. So, what's an area of your life where you allow tradition to make you look like a hero, but in private, you're avoiding God's real expectations for you. What is your Corbin issue? I know we all do it in some way because I know we all have the same legalistic hearts as the Pharisees. We constantly seek new ways to look good in front of others while hiding what we do in private. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, are we living our lives based on what Scripture actually commands of us or some man-made, alternate reality version of Christianity. I know that Martin Luther had to wrestle with this 500 years ago, just like we have to wrestle with it today. When he visited Rome in 1510 and went to confession, the priest told him to do penance for his sin, to crawl up the stairs of the Scala Sancta, and the church said that these stairs had been imported from Jerusalem. They were the very stairs that Jesus stood before Pilate on. And the priest told Martin Luther, if you crawl up these stairs on your knees, repeating the Lord's Prayer, kissing each step, you would be forgiven of your sins. When he reached the top, Martin Luther would later write, he looked back at the staircase and thought, who knows if this even works. Luther watched as the sale of indulgences was increased and increased in order to pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Lay people were told that they could purchase their loved one's way out of purgatory, and many bought it. One day before the celebration of All Saints Day on November 1st, there were many relics were being lined up in the streets. The people were told if you go and touch these relics, you could receive spiritual power and forgiveness they would pray to the saints of the church. And on this day, right before the celebration, he nailed his 95 grievances to the door. The printing press had just come to relevance. 
quickly. This was uh, on the streets. It was out there, those 95 theses. Luther, at the time, just wanted to debate a handful of issues. He had no initial desire to leave the Catholic Church or to split it. Luther himself would later write, he did not believe his actual conversion to Christ came until 1519, as he had been wrestling with Romans 1.17. A simple phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything he saw in his world that surrounded him looked like tradition. Nothing looked like faith. You know, people believe that the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation is about things like the role of Mary in worship, holy water, the Pope, the Bible being translated out of Latin. And look, all those things are significant, very significant. But they are not the heart of the Reformation. The central question that caused Martin Luther to be converted and to eventually say, here I stand, I can do no other, is how is a sinner made righteous before a holy God? That is the heart of the Reformation. He kept getting answers from his colleagues and leaders that sounded like a combination of traditions, man-made rules, man-made theology, and works intermingled with grace. Everything around him sounded like the description of the Pharisees in Mark 7, 8, when Jesus said, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. But eventually, Luther decided he had to do the opposite and leave the tradition of man to hold to the commandment of God. He could not live as a hypocrite any longer. He had to admit that the, the clear teaching of Scripture is that the just shall live by faith. And it was worth any controversy to defend it. We are saved today, church, on this Reformation Day. We are reminded that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the heart of the Reformation because that is the heart of the Bible. That is the heart of our very salvation. And you know what? There's no false traditional piety that we can gain from that. Because ultimately, it is all Christ. I was a sinner who needed saving. He lived sinlessly. I didn't. He died on a cross. I didn't. He rose from the grave. I didn't. He can save anyone who calls upon his name by faith. I can't. Why would I create a man-made tradition that stands in the way of that? Why would I try to muddy those waters? Why would I try to steal any glory from Almighty God? Because he's worthy of it all. So trust the true Jesus of Scripture, the true gospel, not a man-made religion. Go right to the source, like we do every Sunday, and always be seeking ways to apply the spirit of the Reformation to your own heart. Pray with me.